Um, I'm actually going to take a sip of each of these. You'll understand why in a second. So bear with me here, right? This is Fiji water. And it tastes like water. With a little hint of tropical rain that's been filtered through a lava rock, like a volcanic rock. It's actually totally just water. Like tastes the same as every other water. And now Pepsi, more affordable option. Oh, yeah. So if you know me, you might know that my go-to drink is anything except water. Um, it's always been this way. Since as, I was, as a kid, I would be like, just played soccer. Oh, what, is there soda? Is there Kool-Aid? Is there something sweet? You know, and uh, my wife's always telling me, Mark, you got to drink more water. You need water for your body. And so even now, like much better value right here, I'm thinking... But I, I, I give you these two items because they're, they're, they're a metaphor for the way people live their life. The choices that they make, the, the paths that they pursue, and we have some people that are Fiji water type people, all right? They try to make really good choices, and they're, they're really healthy. Uh, they, they've done pretty well in life. Like, they seem to be respectable. And you got people that are just like Pepsi chuggers, you know? They'll do whatever they want to do, whatever feels good, whatever tastes sweet, no consequences. They just do what they want to do, pursue what they want to pursue. And here's the thing. Whichever person you're more like, whichever path you've pursued, without Christ, both will leave you parched. Both will leave you completely empty, thirsty. And it doesn't matter whether you've been a kind of a good moral person, upstanding citizen, or even somebody who just got into a lot of trouble and done a lot of things you know you shouldn't have done. Here's your main idea this morning. We pursue worldly water that leaves us dry. But the good news is that Jesus pursues us. He quenches our thirst. And then he gives us new pursuits, new desires. So I want you to turn to John 4, if you would. John chapter 4 in your Bibles. And it is in the New Testament. So if you turn to the New Testament, go to the fourth book, fourth gospel here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, find the big number four, and we're going to read in a moment there. Chapter four comes on the heels of a controversy, the end of chapter three. So once you get your Bible open, you can glance there and you can see that there were some Jews who, who they came up to John the Baptist and they said, hey, John, uh, did you know that Jesus has more disciples than you do? And John is not overcome with jealousy. He doesn't seem to play that game. He didn't bite and he says, actually, uh, it's about Christ. I'm a forerunner. And he actually says, I'm overjoyed. I have a lot of joy that Jesus is magnified. And we come into chapter 4, and we have something very similar from Jesus. And as we'll read in a moment, we're going to see that Jesus flies above the controversy too. He doesn't get caught up in this John the Baptist versus Jesus thing. They want to pit them against each other. Jesus will not have it. Instead, he leaves Judea, and he travels to Galilee. But the road that he chose, I think, is surprising, and the interaction that he has with this woman in Samaria is surprising as well. So will you follow along as I read John 4, and we're going to read verses 1 all the way through 30. This is God's word. I want you to take this in and see what God has to say for us. John 4, starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples. He left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. 
And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that, got, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. We'll stop here. This is God's word. Now, first thing I see in John 4 is that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, it says. But if you know anything about that time, there were actually three routes that a Jew could take from Judea to Galilee. They did not have to pass through Samaria. Now, Jesus chooses the most direct route by far, which is what we usually do, right? Like you open Google Maps and you say, okay, let's navigate to this place. What are the alternative routes? Okay, this one's going to take me 47 minutes. This one's going to take me 53. This one's going to take me an hour and 10 minutes. I choose the shortest one. I always love when I'm, I'm driving down the road and my navigation says to me, we found a shorter route for you. It will save you 14 minutes. Do you want to accept it? And I'm always like, yes, right? Every time. And then sometimes I notice on the map, it'll show some alternate routes. 
And on a really long trip, like interstate trip, I've seen as much as an extra hour or two. And I'm like, who in their right mind is going to click that? Why would I want to add an extra hour or two onto my trip? Well, there were many religious Jews in Jesus' day who chose that very feature on Google Maps. They wanted to go the longer route. They went all the way around Samaria. They avoided Samaria. And you might say, why? Did they avoid toll roads? You know, were they, were they not wanting to, uh, they wanted to do the scenic route? Why? No, it's because they didn't want to go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. They absolutely hated them. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. It goes all the way back to 722 BC when the Assyrians came in and they conquered Israel and they deported all the Jews, right? And then when they deported all the Jews, they put in their place people from other cultures, their own people. They, they basically repopulated it. And in time, those individuals intermarried with the Jews that were left because they did leave some Jews. They left the handicapped, the ones that offered them nothing, the ones that were the poor. And so after a while, there was intermarriage. There was uh, half Jew, half Gentile, making this a group of people called the Samaritans, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were kind of this poignant reminder of their failure, of their defeat. And all this bad blood, it causes many Jews to say, I'll just go the long way. What's an extra hour or two? Religious Jews in particular did that. Now, not every Jew. Some said they were really practical. They are like, let's go the shortest route. But most religious Jews avoided it altogether. This is the very first hint, I believe, in chapter 4 of God's pursuit of this Samaritan woman. Because Jesus is coming after her. Jesus is on a mission. And some people say, well, it's just that Jesus was in a rush, like it was expediency. First of all, I don't think God's ever in a rush. I think he always is perfectly on time. But if Jesus was in such a rush that he had to take the direct route, why do we later in verse 40, which we didn't read, See that Jesus stays an extra two days in Sychar, talking with the people, ministering to them. No, I believe that Jesus has a plan, he has a purpose, that God pursues people for salvation, and I believe this this Jesus is coming after the Samaritan woman. So he must, yes, go through Samaria. He must. Jesus is purposeful. He doesn't do anything by accident. Often in the Gospels, you'll read it say, Jesus did this, such and such, and it'll say, so that it might be fulfilled. Because he is fulfilling the will of God as he's doing everything he's doing. And so Jesus must go through Samaria. I find these words even more meaningful when I read verse 23 in our text, where it says that the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is seeking this woman. And the only thing that forced Jesus to go through Samaria was his love for this woman and his love for the people of Sychar. He comes to this town, it's called Sychar, and he stops at Jacob's well about noon, sixth hour. And his disciples go into town, buy some food, and Jesus sets down at the well, hottest part of the day. Jesus is parched. And before I go on, I want you just to note, I think it's important that we stop and recognize, Jesus is weary. Jesus is tired, and I find this to be a beautiful snapshot of the incarnation. Isn't there a complex beauty in the fact that God became man? The Almighty God takes on human flesh and lives as a human being, and he's prone to all the the difficulties and the struggles that we face, and here we have the God-man who's thirsty and tired. 
It's significant. Don't skip over this. Because right here we have Jesus who's weak physically, and yet he's filled with this spiritual power that can bring life, eternal life to the world. Isn't that amazing? He's weak, he's thirsty, but inside of him, he offers us eternal life. That's the beauty of Jesus, God and man. The weary Jesus is the omnipotent God, but his glory is veiled in this human flesh. I think the incarnation reveals like God's length to save us. He'll go to any length. He'll come to earth, be a human, suffer what we suffer in order to save his people. Now, Jesus is weary and he's depleted, but don't make a mistake, he's still on his mission. In fact, even his thirst is setting up this whole conversation in the way in which he reaches the woman at the well. That's brilliant, isn't it? His weakness, he uses his physical weakness for this conversation. It's strange that the woman comes at noon because in that culture, most women would come early in the morning or they'd come later at night when it was cooler, not in the middle of the day. It's also interesting she came alone because apparently in that culture, it's commonplace for women to come together. It's kind of a social event. They, they come, get the water together, and uh, apparently it's like the first century equivalent of going to the bathroom and they just kind of hang out and talk and do their, you know, get their water and then bring it back and... I think what we know about the Samaritan woman by reading on, she probably doesn't want to be around everyone else. Her name might be mud with the other ladies. And she kind of wants to do this on her own. Maybe it's her shame. Maybe she's hiding. But on this day, this woman meets a Jewish man and she finally comes out of the hiding. It's surely no accident that Nicodemus, who we saw last week, comes in the night, like under the cover of darkness. And here we have a woman who comes, John tells us, in the middle of the brightest part of the day, here she is. John uses in his writings the symbolism of darkness and light a lot. You might know that from his gospel or from his letters. He often talks about darkness and he talks about light. And darkness represents hiding. And light represents honesty, openness. And this day, the woman comes into the light. Actually, as I was studying these, it's overwhelming how different Nicodemus is from the woman at the well. Like, they're so different, and that's why I wanted to preach the accounts back-to-back so you could see what I think is John's intention. As he's compiling his gospel, he purposely puts Nicodemus next to the narrative of the woman at the well. In between, he says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Here we have Nicodemus last week. Here we have the woman at the well. Almost could not be more different, and he's making a point. Jesus loves people. All people. Nicodemus is a named man. We, we have give, we're given his name, Nicodemus. This woman, they don't even give us his name, her name. She's unnamed. Nicodemus is Jewish. He's high society. And the woman is worse than low Jewish society. She's Samaritan. Nicodemus is a fastidious keeper of the law. Like he's a moral guy, does all the right stuff, upstanding citizen. Here we have the woman at the well who apparently was known for her immorality. We could say it this way, Nicodemus was a Fiji water connoisseur, okay? The woman at the well is chugging Pepsi. They're different kinds of people all together, but both of them are thirsty for Christ. Both of them need Christ. And I love how Jesus relates so perfectly. He's flexible. Like if he's talking with Nicodemus, he meets him where he is. He talks about his heart need. When he's with the woman, he meets her where she is. 
Jesus is beautiful like that. Now, what happens in this account is truly remarkable given the day and age that it's written. If a woman ran into a, a, a man at the well, a Jewish man was instructed, like in the writings, not to talk to a woman in public. And that's like a Jewish woman. Certainly, you don't talk to a Samaritan woman. You don't shoot the breeze and talk to her. It's kind of immodest. It's just too forward. Consider the fact that Jesus is single. The woman's known for her immorality. We have here a kind of a scandalous situation, a real cultural taboo. And so the woman's shocked, and she, she says, uh, you know, what are you doing? And then John's commentary in verse 9 is interesting. John's little commentary is, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, I've always read that, and I got the point of, like, Jews don't like Samaritans. Okay. But when you dig in and you understand what the literal rendering of that phrase is, literally, it actually means they do not use the same dishes. They don't use dishes in common is how it can often be translated. So John's saying, like, it's not okay for a Jew to share a water jug with a woman who's Samaritan. It's not okay. It would actually make Jesus unclean. The Jew would not have done this. It would have contaminated them. And it's not a sanitary issue. We're talking about a racist issue here. We're talking about like they hated the Samaritans and they would not touch their lips to the same dish. Not all that different from the 1950s in this country where we had separate water fountains and entire plumbing built around this idea that one group of people is more superior to another. And I love how Jesus just doesn't even play that game. He's like, no. He goes right to her. He says, give me a drink. He doesn't care that she's a woman. He doesn't care that she's Samaritan. He sees her soul. He sees that she needs him, that she's thirsty, and he loves her. Jesus is undeterred. He's undeterred by cultural taboos. He's undeterred by how different this woman is. He doesn't care. And I want to say to you this morning, other people may look down upon you for whatever reason. But Jesus sees you, and he sees you as a person who needs him. Whatever your background, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your struggle, whatever your proclivity, if you're more of a Fiji water person or a Pepsi person, he sees you, he sees your need, and he loves you where you are. This is the reason that our missions team right now is in Costa Rica. Two of my daughters are there. And I'm doing okay with it. Like, I've only checked Google Maps like every hour to see where they are and make sure that her phone is still on and everything. And, but our team right now is in Costa Rica. Why? Because God loves all people and he wants all people to come to Jesus Christ. So they're there right now spreading the gospel, supporting the missionaries because God loves all people. It's why we will not ever tolerate a hint of racism in this church because God loves all people. Then in verse 10, Jesus takes the conversation in a different direction. I, I don't know if you picked this up, but Jesus is asking for a drink. He's, he's asking. It's a request. But now all of a sudden, he's inviting and he's offering a drink to the woman. So he turns it around and her confusion continues to grow. Like not only is this wacky Jew breaking all the rules, he is crazy. He's saying he's going to give me water. He doesn't have any vessels to draw it from. And she's concerned. She looks at him and says, you have, you, have no vest, you have nothing to offer me, is kind of what she's saying. But oh, how she's wrong, right? Jesus has everything to offer her. She just doesn't get it yet. And again, I see the wisdom of Christ. I see his 
patient, diligent pursuit of this woman. Because from the very first words he spoke, when he says, give me a drink, he already has planned what he's going to do. He's going to offer her this living water. And he leads the woman so gracefully into the conversation where now she's learning about him and about his living water. And he guides the conversation towards himself. I want to pause a moment and just say, we as believers, those of you who know Jesus Christ, we should be trying to model, a follow Jesus model here of guiding conversations to Jesus. Use natural conversations about whatever it is and pray and say, God, show me how to lead this conversation to the person of Jesus because that's what they really need. Jesus does it so masterfully. Of course, the woman doesn't catch on yet, right? She's, she's like Nicodemus. She's still thinking physical plane. And in her defense, like that is what they've been talking about, physical water. So why would she think anything differently than physical water? And she thinks maybe Jesus has access to higher quality water, better than Jacob's well. Maybe it's like tropical rainwater that's been filtered through volcanic rock. Maybe Jesus has amazing water. I want that water, Jesus. She says these words, though. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Surely you're not greater than Jacob. It's like the ironic statement of the year, right? Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Yeah, and then some, right? And so much more. And so Jesus begins to describe water that's different than the water in Jacob's well. He says, I got, I got water that will quench your thirst permanently. You'll never thirst again. And of course, she's a practical person. She says, okay, sir, give me that water. I'd like to not have to come here all the time. I'd like to have to make the trek. So please, give me that water. Not so fast. Jesus offers her living water, but first he wants to reveal something to the woman about her need, that she needs this water, that all of her pursuits up to this point have left her hopeless, have left her, left her dry, and he wants her to know that he knows the state that he's in, and he wants her to turn from that. Jesus wants her to see her pursuit for happiness was empty. So all of a sudden, he gets pretty personal, right? And he knows exactly how to get to the heart. And I want to read verse 16 through 18 again here. As Jesus says to the woman, he says, go call your husband. Like, what does that have to do with anything, right? (laughs) Well, he says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Now, what she said was true. It's very short, but it's true. (laughs) She doesn't want to go into all the details, but she says, I don't have a husband. So I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, then Jesus says, yeah, you've had five and... The guy you're living with now, not your husband. And this woman must have been mortified as Jesus reveals and kind of shines light on this darkest part of her life. But Jesus does this in such a way that he, he, he's not in front of everyone embarrassing her. It's just him and her. And he gently, lovingly says, I, I, know, I know. I know what you've been through. She's working on her sixth failed marriage, okay? And she's, she's pretty much on her way, the way she's living, She's most likely experienced the pain of divorce five times. It's possible they could have died, though if you had five husbands die, they may suspect something, you know? Um, So probably these men have divorced her. And she's gone through that pain five times. Maybe she's a little gun-shy the sixth time. She's living with a guy. She has pursued love, and she's still searching. And we run, and we run, and we get nowhere. We're running to stand still because in our pursuits without Christ, we always come up empty. I don't care how many times we try. 
And I want you to notice from the Samaritan woman's example that relationships cannot bring peace. No relationship can bring peace. So when we're young, we think, you know, if I can just find the right spouse, like the right husband, the right wife, then I'll be complete. They will complete me, and I will be happy. And then you get married, and you realize there is no perfect people, and you realize marriage is really hard work. Sometimes married people wake up one day and they think, I'm not happy with this person anymore. I deserve somebody that makes me happy. I need somebody who will make me happy. We have parents that hang their hopes of happiness on a child. You know, on the, their children are going to make them happy, which is very unfair, and it's going to backfire. Now, there's no doubt about it. Like, we as humans are wired for relationship. Like, it's in our DNA. God made us to have relationship with one another. That's how we're built. And relationship can bring joy. Like, we can actually have joy through our relationships. But no relationship, no matter how healthy it is, will bring the satisfaction that Jesus brings, the relationship with God brings, even if your relationships are healthy. This woman, her relationships weren't even healthy. So relationships can't bring peace, but neither can sin. Sin cannot bring peace. Again, Jesus, he exposes this really difficult, sinful part of this woman's life, and he highlights this mess. But he doesn't just talk about the problem. He offers another way. He puts salve on her wounds. He says, yes, you've messed up, but I'm here to offer you something different. It reminds me of Jeremiah 2.13. As I read the woman at the well, you might know this verse from Jeremiah. God says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Surely, Jesus has in his mind this passage, right? I mean, God's people had committed two sins. The first, forsaking their God, their God Yahweh. And the second, pursuing all these other things that were broken sisters. They can't hold any water. Marriage does not fulfill you. I don't care if you're married four, five, six times. Relationships cannot fulfill you. They're broken wells. They're broken cisterns. And so Jesus is offering a different way. He's saying, I'm the living water. You've forsaken me. And I think it's important that we notice that God, in the form of Jesus, calls the woman to repentance. Same thing he did with Nicodemus. Both Nicodemus and women, and, and the woman at the well have uh, this hurdle that they need to repent. And we so often just want to jump right to the satisfaction in Christ. Like we want to tell somebody, you know what? Jesus will satisfy you. Jesus has got a good plan for your life. True. But first, he wants you to recognize that you've forsaken him. You have run after the wrong things. That's, that's wrong. You need to repent from that. Turn from the life that you were living, which is what Jesus is saying to this woman. He makes sure she knows she needs to do something different and repent. And Jesus in John 3 and 4, he, he helps us see a different angle of repentance because for different people, repentance might look a little different. It's the same repentance. But for Nicodemus, consider this if you were here last week, Nicodemus repentance meant rebirth. Jesus is saying, you have done, you've done everything right by human standards, but you need to start all over. Like, you need to forget everything you thought you knew and be reborn. That's repentance for Nicodemus. And for the woman at the well, it's more rest than it is rebirth. It's, you have worked so hard to find joy and satisfaction, and now it's time to just rest in Jesus. Just look to me. I'm the living water. 
Both are repentance, but it's slightly different for different people. Jesus knows just how to get to the heart of somebody. H.B. Charles says this, uh, he says, Nicodemus shows us there is no one beyond the need of grace. The woman at the well shows us there is no one beyond the reach of grace. And these two stories back to back are just beautiful, right? The grace of God is the answer. And so Jesus reveals this sordid past of the woman and, and And then she says this statement to Jesus. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, this is a turning point here in the the conversation because finally the woman is starting to think spiritually. Up to this point, it's all been physical water. And now she's like, something's different about you. I think you're a prophet. Interestingly, the Samaritans only believed in Moses as the last prophet. They didn't believe in any of the prophets after Moses. So for her to say you're a prophet meant you're in the order of Moses. She may have been starting to catch on here. This is, this is the Messiah. But notice she shifts the conversation a little bit. I don't think that's like, I mean, she has a theological question, but he just touched on something really painful. So instead of talk about relationships and husbands, she's like, let's talk about worship sites. Let's talk about location of worship, right? <laughs> I feel a little better with that. Not, not my romantic past. But notice Jesus, he just, he's so focused on her heart, he's undeterred, he is relentless. Jesus, when he comes after us, is relentless, and it doesn't matter what we jump to or try to kind of maybe squirm away from the Holy Spirit, Jesus pursues us. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and this Jesus is seeking and saving the lost here. He just keeps on getting to her heart. He doesn't get caught up in the worship controversy. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that. And I don't want to downplay that because in that day that was important to them, where you worshiped. But what Jesus is saying, he's saying there's a time coming when, I mean, first of all, the temple's going to be destroyed. He may be referring to that. But also, Jewish worship will change fundamentally and Samaritan worship will change fundamentally. And there's a new temple. I'm the new temple, Jesus. Right? He's saying everything is about to change. Unless religion is centered in the person of Jesus, it's futile. It doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. It doesn't matter how different you are from this other church. None of that matters if it's not focused on Jesus. And so even religion cannot bring peace apart from Jesus. The best that religion is without Jesus is Fiji water. You know, it's like you clean yourself up, good choice, went to church and all of that. But it's still empty. It still leaves you thirsty because relationships don't bring peace. Sin doesn't bring peace. Religion doesn't bring peace. Interestingly, where Jesus and the woman are standing here in Sychar, it's near Shechem, it's, they're literally standing in front of two mountains, two big mountains right behind them. There's the Mount Gerizim and there's Mount Nebal. And this site actually is tied to Israel's religious, religious history. And you might remember when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the land, it was before these two mountains that the people of Israel split and they both read and kind of shouted the blessings of keeping the law and obeying the law and the curses from another side. And so they're they're speaking the blessings, they're speaking the curses, and we know what happened, right? We know that Israel did not keep the law. They did not obey God. And so the fulfillment of that, the, the curses of the law came upon them. They were exiled They were taken into captivity. 
Here we have a Samaritan woman who doesn't really understand the law and who worships in ignorance and is kind of symbolically a reminder of Israel's failure to keep the law. There would never have been Samaritan people if it weren't for the Jews getting exiled from the land, repopulated with other nations, the intermarriage, and here, here we have a Samaritan woman who kind of is a reminder of the failure to keep the law, which is these two mountains represent right behind them. Thankfully, for this woman, it's not about our ability to keep the law. It's not about our ability to keep God's law perfectly. If we've learned anything from Romans, hopefully we've learned that, right? It's about the deep reservoir of grace in Jesus Christ. He is this fountain. He is this living water, and he offers it, and it's so much more rewarding than strict observance of the rules, being a good person, coming to church. No. There's another way, and Jesus is basically saying, yeah, you don't really worship what you even know. Like the Jews and Samaritans disagree about this, but none of that much matters because it's about me. Do you accept me as the living water? That's what matters. And Jesus brings it right to himself. Notice verse 10. We read this earlier. We read in verse 10 when Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God, you would ask me for this living water. Jesus says right there, salvation is a gift. It's a free gift. I'm offering this living water. It's not about your religion. It's not about your ability to keep the law. You're not even a Jew. It's about me. It's about grace. It's a free gift from God. And then the woman starts to make some sense. Now she's thinking about the Messiah. Jesus led her to a place of salvation. I think she may even be questioning, could this guy be the Messiah? She mentions the Messiah's coming. She's primed, she's ready, she's focused on the person of Jesus, and then Jesus delivers the punchline. Verse 26, it's the climax of the whole chapter, verse 26. When Jesus looks at her, after she said the Messiah's coming, and he says, I who speak to you am he. And literally in the original language, what he says is, I that speak to you, I am and John likes us to see how Jesus declares himself the I am all throughout his gospel. There's overtones here of the Godhead, of Yahweh. I am who I am. I'm eternal. I've always been. I always will be. And Jesus says, the one you're speaking about, I am. Now, the woman wouldn't have caught that. There's no way. She's a Samaritan. She didn't know all of that. But John wants us to catch it, that Jesus is saying, I'm God and I'm here. And Jesus reveals himself to this woman, which is... Pretty amazing when you consider the fact that Jesus very infrequently said, I'm the Messiah. He just didn't do that. He didn't do that. But here he does it with a Samaritan woman. And he says, I am him. I'm the Messiah. So when he is, when he is he's giving himself to the woman, which by the way, in the end of chapter 2, he says he, he wouldn't reveal himself to the people. He wouldn't because they didn't believe in him. And here he reveals himself to the woman. He says, I'm the Messiah. That is significant. That's an invitation. That's him saying, here I am. Will you take me? And in that moment, with Jesus' declaration hanging in the air, something happened in this woman. She's changed. She's made new. And then right then, the disciples awkwardly walk in, right? And the first thing they notice is, Jesus is talking to a woman. What is he doing? 
They notice the awkwardness of it. They, they pick up on that, but they don't know what just happened. They do not understand. Jesus has ministered to this woman. He's changed her. She goes back to town. Why? With the express purpose of telling people about this Jesus. Just come. Come see. This, this might be the Messiah. I believe this is the Messiah. Consider the fact that she'd been avoiding people, and now she's pursuing people. She'd been hiding, and now she's, she's in the light. Because that's the thing about Jesus. When he changes us, he gives us new pursuits. He completely reorients our life in a different way. We're different people. God gives us new pursuits. Our priorities shift. When we follow Jesus, he makes us fishers of men. You might have noticed that she left her jar at the well. Could have been many reasons for this. I'm not totally sure. But it does tell me one thing. It tells me that the woman realized the water that Jesus offered was far more important right now than the water that she came for. She was going to tell people about a, a superior water. And she so, shows such courage, right? I mean, here's a, here's a woman whose reputation's not good. And Jesus has just shown light on the darkness in her life. He's just revealed it. And she doesn't, she doesn't run and hide. She runs and tells. She runs and tells people you got to come talk to this man. He's the Messiah, I think. And the woman understood something that the disciples didn't even get yet. Because if you glance down at verse 35, we didn't read that, but Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, the fields are white unto harvest. And he might have been looking at actual fields and it might have been harvest time. But what he's talking about is there are a ton of people who need me, who, who need to be made new, need to be changed, need to be harvested for the kingdom. And he's talking about the people from Sychar who are getting ready to come to him and be saved, be changed. This woman got it. She understood. We got to go out there. The fields are white unto harvest. So I see this text as a very missional passage where it's not just like, hey, we find our satisfaction in Jesus. Yes, but it's also about are we looking at the fields? Are we seeing them white into harvest? Are we like the woman who has new pursuits, desire to see other people know Jesus Christ? And so she goes to town, verse 39 through 42. She tells people and they run back. They come to see Jesus. And they hear from Jesus and they learn from Jesus. And I love verse 42 because their response, the people's response is this. They say, it is no longer because of what you said, the woman, that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What that means? Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, every kind of person. Jesus is the Savior of the world. These people are finally drinking from a well that far surpasses Jacob's well. It, it, it's, a, it's a well that they've never drank from before. They're, they're meeting Jesus. And they discover the truth in verse 14 that we read that says, Jesus says, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water that is, that is welling up to eternal life. That, that word welling up, it's like jumping up. It's springing up. It's the same word that's used of the lame man who's healed by Jesus and he springs up something's happened inside of them. They're different. They say, it's not just because of your testimony to the, to the woman, though that led us to Jesus. It's because we heard for ourselves this Jesus. The, the, the Holy Spirit comes inside and he, he creates an energy and he wells up inside of us. That's what we're talking about here. That's rebirth in the case of Nicodemus. That is satisfaction for this woman. And I want to close with just asking you a couple questions. First, has that happened to you? 
Has that ever happened to you where you had something inside of you change and all, all of a sudden you wanted things different? You had new desires. Whatever you were pursuing before, whether you were pursuing the, the clean, healthy, moral life or whether you were pursuing the wicked, sinful life that's obviously void of Christ, either way, you realized I need Jesus. And then something happened inside of you as you called out, as you turned from your old way and you said, I need you, Jesus. Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been reborn? Are you still so thirsty? There's a God-shaped hole in your heart. Do you have new pursuits? Now, if you're a believer here, I want to ask you a question. Do you have a heart to share the living water with those that don't know Christ? Are you motivated to say, I found Jesus. I found living water. It's sprung up within me and I got to share it. I want to share it. I want to tell people about Jesus. Are you flexible in sharing your faith like Jesus, where if you're with one kind of person, you can share your faith. If you're with another kind of person, God has shown you how to share your faith. One of the biggest fears we have is we're not, we don't feel equipped. And I want to encourage you, in the fall, probably the end of October, we're going to have a Cultivate workshop here, which is designed to teach you effective ways to, to share your faith. And I hope that you'll sign up for that because we all need to grow in our ability to be more like Jesus and share grace with people in different ways. We have the living water of Jesus. Will you share it? Here's the ironic thing about Fiji water, okay? It comes from an island where many people do not have safe and clean drinking water. So it's easier for Americans to get clean, safe drinking water from Fiji than the people that live there themselves. Think about that for a second. And as you think about that, consider the fact that there's a, a worse problem. <laughs> and that's a problem. There's a worse problem. We have the living water of Jesus Christ, and we come in here on Sundays, and we worship together, and we, we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we love that. And every day, we have the Holy Spirit in us who, who springs up to eternal life. We've got people all around us who are dying, who don't have living water. Will we share it with them? The fields are white unto harvest, the passage says. So will we share this living water with those around us?